0: Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Coming at you with a bonus podcast this week. I'm especially excited about this one uh, for a variety of reasons. Robert Wright is is a really, really smart dude. Uh, he is a journalist and a scholar. Uh, he's written a bunch of best-selling science y books uh, including The Evolution of God, Non-Zero, The Moral Animal. He has uh, studied religion. He's studied evolutionary psychology. And he is uh, <laughs> he has provided a really important and interesting entry into what I think is one of the most interesting trends in modern global culture, which is and this is just my opinion, by the way, but um, one of the most interesting trends that I see is that, that we're seeing this counterintuitive yet robust embrace among some uh, Western intellectuals of ancient Eastern mysticism. And Bob Wright has just, as I said, uh, uh, provided us with what, what I think is a really important entry into this nascent phenomenon. He's written a book called Why Buddhism is True which is uh, part polemic, part uh, memoir, part explainer, where this he does what I love seeing. He, he, we have this, this incredible mind uh, who came up through the Western system at Princeton and other fancy-pants institutions uh, who got turned on to Buddhism, and, and he really took a deep dive. And what this book does is explain uh, through his lens, particularly of evolutionary psychology, why Buddhism is true in his view. And um, it's funny and it's fascinating and it's deep. And I think it's uh, another way in which these ancient technologies of meditation are going to be able to catch on with surprising groups of people. Because when somebody like Bob Wright comes out and says, hey, this stuff is working for me, um, I I think a lot of people sit up and notice. And we're already seeing that because the book, uh, which just hit shelves recently, is, um, is doing incredibly well. And I hope it continues to do so. Uh, as you'll hear in this interview, he is uh, an engaging fellow and has a lot to say. Uh, so I've said a bunch. And now I'll shut up and let Bob do the talking. Here we go, Robert Wright. Thanks for coming on. Appreciate it.
1: Well, thank you for having me. As you know, I'm a fan of the podcast, the book, and the entire Dan Harris evangelical enterprise. I'm thank delighted you. to be here.
0: I think this is a very important book, and I love I love seeing somebody of your Intellectual horsepower, but also sort of background, you know, coming from a scientific, secular background, turning your attention to Buddhism slash mysticism slash spirituality, whatever you want to call it. We have a poverty of language in this area, I think. It's just, I think, incredibly important and, and, and I, it has the potential to bring in entirely new groups of people into this, what I think is a really healthy form of mental hygiene. So bravo from the jump. Well, thank you. It's n- nice of you to say that. So I always start with the same question, which is how did you personally get into this meditation thing?
1: Well, I guess I had flirted with meditation ever since college. You know, you were supposed to kind of in college. You were supposed to read a little Eastern philosophy or something and, and think about Zen or something. It had never worked for me. I have a very limited attention span. I'm not a natural meditator. So finally what did it was a meditation retreat, a one-week silent meditation retreat that I did in 2000.
0: Why would you do that? 2001, why did you do What was going on in your life?
1: You know, nothing in particular. I was having a conversation with some friends in Los Angeles, um, and somebody was plugged into this one place, the Insight Meditation Society, and recommended it. Um, I and, guess I and, I. and
0: we should say that's in Barrie, Massachusetts. B a r r e. Correct. Where, correct. Where, where you will find my meditation teacher Joseph Goldstein, who it comes up in your book. Yep. Yeah. Anyway, a, a great place where I go and retreat as well. So you you decided to go.
1: I did, and you know the first two days were hell, as I guess <laughs> people know. Um, I, I just you know couldn't focus on ten consecutive breaths.
0: Ten consecutive breaths is a lot, even when you're super concentrated.
1: It's a lot. But you would hope that after two days of solid meditation, you'd you'd get into double figures. But then finally it clicked. And in fact, I had some, by the end of the retreat, some very powerful experiences. Uh, And leaving aside independent, you know, specific experiences while meditating, there was just a kind of a transformation of my consciousness. It was just amazing.
0: Oh, that's a big, big phrase, transformation of my consciousness. Well, I
1: don't mean permanent. I, I don't mean, you know, it just clicked and I never had to meditate again or that it stayed at that level uh for weeks and months after the retreat but at the end of the retreat I did feel as if my consciousness had been transformed in what way well I just saw beauty everywhere I looked and I'm not normally the type to do that um (laughs) I felt kindly disposed toward humankind another thing I wasn't in the habit of um you know the the standard things way less judgmental uh, about people um I mean I remember I called my wife at the end of the retreat and before I'd even said anything about the retreat, she was like, "I like this version of you just just by the tone <laughs> of my voice I hadn't said it, you know I hadn't there I hadn't uttered a meaningful sentence she just liked how calm I sounded
0: the buoyancy sort of the
1: yeah and I just seemed like a nice guy all of a sudden.
0: <laughs> so, safe to say, baseline, you're curmudgeonly?
1: You know, I uh, I have my moments of transcending that, but, you know, I'm not... Who am I not? I'm not Mr. Rogers. Uh, <laughs> I'm not. You know, there's a lot of good people I'm not. Um, you know, Mike Kinsley, uh, who I worked for at the New Republic, once suggested that I write a column called The Misanthrope. You know, uh... <laughs> So, anyway, at the end of this retreat, I felt very, very good. And I felt like I was a better person. I was a better person.
0: Now, did you think you would become a Buddhist? Well, And would you call yourself a Buddhist?
1: I, I still don't call myself a Buddhist. It's, that's a tough call. Um, I guess the reason I don't, it, it may seem kind of odd for somebody who writes a book called Why Buddhism is True to say I don't call myself a Buddhist, but... The reason I don't is I know that in Asia, you know, Buddhism means something different to most people who are Buddhists. There's a whole kind of, you know, religious part in the traditional sense that isn't part of the Buddhism that I have gotten into, uh, or the the part uh, a part of the kind of Buddhism that a lot of people in the West have gotten into. I mean, we, you know, it's what we do is you know it's sometimes called secular Buddhism or naturalistic Buddhism. But I, you know, I don't. Uh, I don't believe in reincarnation, and, and there's there's various uh, senses in which I'm not a literally religious Buddhist. And so I just feel a little awkward um, kind of uh, appropriating there the, the term. But I'm fine with people who do, wh- wh- whatever. I, I just, uh, I, you know, I feel a little awkward when I go into a meditation hall about, like, bowing to the Buddha. I Me usually too. don't unless there's, like, overwhelming peer pressure to yeah. do it. It just seems a little fake or something.
0: I have the same. I've written about it. I have the same sort of qualms, uh, and I find that generally, the longer I'm on retreat, the more comfortable I get with it. And then uh, I think I'm, I joked in, in in my book that eventually I was I just do it for the hamstring stretch. Um, but <laughs> it, it it does feel weird, all the chanting and the bowing. And there's not that much, right. but there's enough so that uh, it can feel a little weird, yeah. uh, at least to me. So so. Why Buddhism is True, Uh, if I had told you back in the 90s that you were ever going to write a book with that
1: title, what would you have, you know, laughed? Well, it would have seemed unlikely. I would have had no real idea of what that would even mean. I mean, I didn't have a clear enough idea of what Buddhism is, I think, at that point. And in fact, I mean, you know, after that first meditation retreat, I didn't have a very clear idea uh, of the, you know, the philosophical part of Buddhism. I mean, I guess I had heard of things like the not self doctrine and so on, but I, I didn't have at all a clear idea of what the philosophical foundation of Buddhism is. And I, and I, and I didn't really understand yet the connection between meditation and that philosophical foundation, which I think is one of the most interesting things and, and something I'm, I'm kind of trying to highlight, which is that you know, even if you have what seems like a strictly therapeutic meditation practice, you know, you're dealing doing stress reduction or addressing anxiety or whatever, and you think of it as therapeutic, you know, if it's like mindfulness meditation, you know, you are I think already on the path uh, toward if you want to follow the path toward uh, you know deep philosophical and spiritual exploration. There is a kind of a continuous path between just addressing anxiety, mindfully say, and concepts like not self or, you know, so-called emptiness, you know, these arcane sounding um, philosophical concepts. I, I, I I think, I guess I would say enlightenment is a more incremental process than it sometimes is talked about as being. I mean, people think of like, well, there are people who have meditated for years and then finally a a switch flipped and they were awakened, they were enlightened. I'm sure that happens, but I also think you can get a little bit enlightened and then a little more enlightened and even if you never go all the way, and of course there's controversy over whether anybody ever has gone all the way or what enlightenment is and so on, but um, you know, I, I think that's the way to think about the practice.
0: That In in the preceding paragraph, there are a lot of uh, things that I want to go mm-hmm. further on. Uh, I want to know whether you think enlightenment is real and what actually it is. Um, but you talked about this concept of not-self and how we, even if we're practicing for a couple minutes a day to manage our anxiety or boost our focus mm-hmm. or deal with our pain in our knee or whatever, that actually we're, we're kind of on this slippery slope towards some deeper philosophical and spiritual concepts such as the one you mentioned, not self. What is that, and how do we get there through meditation?
1: Well, not self. I mean, the experience. I, I I've had kind of, you might say, glimmers of elements of not self. That's that's how close I've gotten, and and, and that's been partly while on retreat, when you have the, the the opportunity to go the deepest. Um, but I've talked to people who have seemed to have had pretty much the full on. Not self experience. What does that mean? What is it? Well, I I, I, I divide it into two parts. Actually, uh, there's um the the kind of interior not self and and exterior not self. Okay, so like as for the interior not self, I mean if uh, if you look at anxiety in a what you know you just you don't run from it, you just observe it, experience it get close to it which of course we don't we don't naturally do we naturally you know try to push unpleasant feelings away but if you're you're meditating and you just say okay I'm going to absorb myself in it I'm going to experience it you ironically by getting closer to it can get a kind of detachment from it a kind of a critical distance from it to the point where you no longer consider it part of yourself okay so you have let go of a little bit of um, yourself now, if you look at the the kind of original the Buddha's original discourse on not self, that's actually kind of the way he handled. It. He kind of goes through all the parts of human experience and and says, uh, do you do you really does it really make sense to think of this as part of yourself? I mean, he he doesn't go you know he doesn't mention anxiety, but I mean he, like feelings and, and the basic categories of human experience. And in fact, there are some people who interpret that discourse as strictly therapeutic. They say he, he wasn't even claiming that the self doesn't exist, which is the way it's now interpreted. And, and certainly that that's the way the doctrine developed in Buddhism. He was he was just saying, look, do yourself a favor. You know, <laughs> these various parts of us, we can't control them. They make us suffer. Just let go, right? <laughs> Don't identify with them. I mean, that's, that's one possible reading of what he was saying. But in any event, that's his approach. I mean, I, so... Uh, to explaining the doctrine uh, is to to say these various parts that you think of as yourself you don't have to think of as part of yourself and the natural thing to do is to start with the most problematic things like anxiety self-loathing remorse and meditate on them in such a way that they don't seem like you have to identify with them and so you don't have to uh, accept the the discomfort that they've been causing you so so, And 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 there's immense
0: practical value in not taking your thoughts, feelings, emotions personally, because then they don't yank you around as much.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that's just a huge part of mindfulness uh, meditation is is getting a kind of perspective on feelings and thoughts that in principle, at least it's not always easy by any means. But in principle, allows you to decide whether you want to accept their guidance or, or, or just kind of let go of them. So. I think of that as being the kind of – well, let me cut to the chase first of all and say people who have experienced full-on not-self view it as liberating. What does that even mean, full-on not-self? Well, it gets hard beyond a point because asking them what it's like to be them doesn't always yield as clear and articulate (laughs) answers you would like. I will say this other part of it though, what I call the exterior part, I think I got a hint of that on a retreat once when I I was – meditating and i i felt like a tingling in my foot and i heard like a bird song and it like genuinely felt as if the source of that bird song was no less a part of me than the tingling of my foot so in other words this the sense of my my boundary had dissolved to a considerable extent Mm. and these two things interior and exterior are related in the sense that I think what put me in a position to feel that was partly the fact that I wasn't identifying so much with the various things that were inside my body anyway, so that that was all seeming a little more diffuse and less aggregated, and I wasn't identifying so closely with tinglings in my foot or anything else because I'd been on retreat a while and and uh, I had a little of that kind of distance and and that made it that somehow you know eroded the barrier between the things inside me and the things outside me. But in any event, this this kind of, this is another thing that is reported by people as, as part of the not-self experience is a kind of dissolution of the bounds of the self. And it is, uh, and the not-self experience has, in addition to it being, you know, liberating, blissful, and so on. And in fact, in that first discourse on the not-self, it says that the monks who heard that sermon were liberated immediately, attained, uh, you know, awakening, enlightenment. Um but in addition to that, to whatever bliss liberation is said to bring, um there is a typically a moral dimension. That is the the idea is uh that selflessness in this kind of metaphysical sense, in other words, not feeling as if you have a self, leads to selflessness of the other kind. You know, if you're not identifying so closely with your own Needs and demands and petty grievances and whatever, and if you feel more continuity with the world out there, then you become uh, naturally enough, I guess, you know, a better person. Yeah.
0: Um. So, enlightenment.
1: Should we have waited longer to get to the enlightenment part? No,
0: no. Let's just get right to the to the to the crux of the issue. Isn't I, I
1: don't purport, of course, to. Th- there are people I've talked to who. Our candidates, you know, they you could argue, maybe they're enlightened, you know, but of course I don't, I don't purport to. Well,
0: we we also have this new, are you saying you're not purporting to be enlightened? I'm
1: not, I'm not even purporting to be within, you know, the ballpark. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not even, you know, it's, it's like not, not in sight.
0: You guys, you and I have this in common, but, but there is this group of people, a very controversial group of people who are coming forward now to say that, uh, they are enlightened. You know, you've got this guy, uh, a friend of mine, Daniel Ingram, this doctor from Alabama. Yeah, I know Daniel. um, yeah, So Daniel's great. I, I love him. But he created an enormous amount of controversy by coming forward and saying, I'm enlightened. Right. Um, uh, th- th- which is g- generally kind of verboten uh, within the meditation community. There's a sort of omerta around this issue. Um uh, so that's kind of an interesting sort of bit of cultural news, I think. But th- that being said, do you, do you have a view on whether – because you come from the same sort of secular scientific background from which I come. I'm not a scientist, but I'm the child of one, the um, uh, child of two, um, and the husband of one. Uh, w- what leads you to believe that enlightenment is possible? Because the word is freighted with I, m- mystical uh, of I'm
1: not sure it is. And in fact, I tend to have – a. a- a kind of a conception of it that is so strict that I'm not sure there's anyone enlightened on the the planet. And, and I, I think if you I mean I really think that, that, that what comes out of uh, kind of early Buddhist teachings is a pretty darn strict conception of enlightenment. For example, I personally think that it traditionally has entailed and I think kind of should entail this moral dimension. So if you're enlightened you should be a super good person and, and not not be causing problems for people and be like consistently generous in your disposition and not grasping and so on and you know some people and and, and daniel i think uh, doesn't have that strict conception of enlightenment there are there are these some people um in his circle who say that, no, we shouldn't think of enlightenment as involving uh, any particular degree of moral progress. The the, the two, I I think, they would say the two, you know, progress on the meditation path tends to involve moral progress. You tend to become a better person as well as a happier person. Um, But they would say well, first of all, it, it's true that that's not guaranteed. There definitely are very good meditators who are not very good people.
0: That's the biggest riddle for me. I mean, I've we've talked about I've yeah. talked about it before on this podcast, but I just think it's so interesting that that you can be a meditative adept and a jerk.
1: Yeah, apparently it can happen. It it has happened. <laughs> yep, yeah. yep, and, and and it's true. But I personally think you should not be allowed to call yourself enlightened if you're a jerk. I mean, I think I think the, one of the most amazing things about Buddhist philosophy to me is that is this claim that the reason we suffer and the reason we make other people suffer, in other words, the reason we're sometimes bad, is that we don't see the world clearly, and that if we will if we see the world more clearly, we will become happier and better. That's an amazing claim because it's like three birds with one stone, right? Truth, happiness, goodness. You know. Uh, and I, I think there's a lot to be said for the claim. I basically defend in in the book the idea that it tends to be not, not guaranteed, but there is this convenient convergence between seeing the world more clearly, becoming happier, and becoming better. And I and I think that's uh, really at the heart of, of Buddhism as traditionally conceived at least, and that's why I'm just not willing to say, that someone's enlightened um, if they're not a pretty good person. So what would you say enlightenment is? Well, I I mean, again, you know, the way I conceive of it, you know, when you start thinking of nirvana, which is, of course, is thought to correspond to enlightenment, right? Uh, The
0: experience of nirvana mm, corresponds to enlightenment.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the idea. Traditionally, the idea is like liberation, enlightenment, nirvana. I mean, the actual Buddhist word that's sometimes translated as enlightenment, would be more literally translated as awakening, I think. But certainly the idea is that these things, if you really cross the final threshold, they come and they all, they're all there. Um, and nirvana is, you know, I mean, you're talking about uh, something pretty blissful. And if you, if you look at the mechanics that are said to lead to nirvana, it's something, it's a threshold that, I, it would be pretty hard to to actually cross because it involves, I guess you could say, complete defiance of the levers that natural selection uses to, built into us, to get us to serve its agenda. I mean, this is the way I look at Buddhism, not the way the Buddha did, of course. Didn't have Darwinian theory. Um, but, uh, and by that I mean You know, the basic lever is you pursue pleasurable sensations and you do whatever you can to get away from unpleasant sensations. That is the mechanism control for animals, you know. And I take nirvana to be what happens when you completely transcend that incentive structure. Um, Now, people can clearly go an amazing distance in this direction. I mean, remember, in Vietnam, you know, there there were monks who immolated themselves and did not move a muscle, okay? They sat there with complete stoicism while burning to death. Now, obviously, they had reached a state uh, that, you know, an indifference to physical pain that is very hard to imagine, but what that shows you is that um, amazing things are possible through meditation and maybe true enlightenment is possible. But but in any event, I would imagine enlightenment in the traditional sense to involve that degree of transcendence of, you know, this basic incentive structure of, of you know, seeking pleasure, avoiding pain.
0: Is it surprising to you at all that a guy with your... Background is even taking concepts like enlightenment and nirvana seriously.
1: Well, again, I mean, I'm, I, I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm talking about them in a very hypothetical, theoretical sense. I, I am not convinced that it's ever actually happened to anyone. I mean, the strict sense of enlightenment that I'm talking about, I'm not convinced that it's ever uh, happened to anyone.
0: So, who was the Buddha in your conception?
1: Oh, I don't know. I mean, uh, as a historical matter, I think we know less about the Buddha than we know about Jesus or Muhammad. And I think we know less about what he actually said. You know, there was quite a period when, uh, you know, things weren't written down in a long time. So there was oral transmission and so on. Uh, So I don't, as you know, as I'm a little agnostic on which of the things attributed to the Buddha um, he actually said, as I am with Jesus and Muhammad, but in a way even more so. I mean, what's clear to me is that fairly early on, a very impressive philosophy developed that diagnosed the human predicament accurately. And, and and the argument I make in my book is that, you know, modern evolutionary psychology validates that prescription in a new way, and modern psychology generally. And in addition, this, this early tradition came up with uh, a treatment, you know, not just the diagnosis, but the cure. So in your
0: view, the Buddha is not a god or a prophet or anything supernatural. Either. Well, as I don't far know. I know. mean,
1: I assume he was a very impressive person. But, but, but I'm not. No, I'm not. Um, w- the kind of Buddhism I talk about in the book, and I, I try to make it clear, like on the first page, um, is what's sometimes called the naturalistic part of, of Buddhism. I'm not getting into reincarnation or anything like that. And, and and there are you know arguments over whether the Buddha got into that you know you know how whether he was more like a philosopher or a religious figure. Um, I just think we actually don't have all that much evidence.
0: Some of the most and you touched on this already, but some of the most interesting parts of what is a thoroughgoingly is that a word interesting book um, have to do with how the mind bequeathed to us by evolution leads us astray. Can you just kind of roll out your basic thesis on that?
1: Yeah. I mean, the first thing is natural selection, the top item on natural selection's agenda is getting genes into the next generation. It designs animals, designs in quotes. It's not an intelligent process, but it designs animals that are good at getting genes into the next generation in the environment in which they evolve. Uh, it doesn't put a high priority on the happiness of the animals, and it, it doesn't even insist that they see the world clearly, and in fact, if delusion uh, will help get genes into the next generation, then delusion there will be. Some of these examples are very trivial. Like if, 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 a, if a large object is approaching us like a car or an animal, we tend to overestimate how fast it's coming, because, you know, better to be on the safe side, right? Um, But that's technically a warping of our assessment of the velocity of the thing, right? And, or to take uh, something like fear or anxiety, Um, again, uh, better to be on the safe side. So, if you're walking through, you know, terrain where you know there are rattlesnakes, you might very often hear something and go, oh, that's a rattlesnake. Or even see something and go, oh, that's a rattlesnake. That's, that's a false positive. And that kind of thing is built into us by natural selection, apparently. Uh, and, and that's kind of a brief momentary illusion, you might say. And then in the modern environment, things actually get worse because this environment is so different from the environment we evolved in. So, like social anxiety is natural. Evolutionary psychologists would say built into us because, you know, in the environment uh, of our evolution, uh, our place in the group mattered. We wanted to be well thought of and so on. And that may itself lead to certain kinds of illusions and distortions. But then you put us in a modern environment where we do unnatural things like give an address to a bunch of people we've never met, you know. And so, you know, people have deep anxieties about public speaking. Because it's not natural. So you take something that was designed to uh, make us unhappy and maybe sometimes to mislead us in the sense of being a false positive. By that, I mean anxiety. And then it gets even worse in a modern environment. Or, you know, like, of course, uh, you know, parents naturally grow anxious uh, about their kids. Like, if, if your toddler wanders off and you realize that, you might briefly have, an you know some fantasy about something horrible having happened to them because that motivates you to run and find out, you know. Um, that presumably was happening in the environment of our evolution. But then in the modern environment, you leave your kids at a daycare center and, and on the first day you don't know anybody there. You know, that's unnatural. So that's an even so, – so natural anxieties. So in other words, natural selection did not care um, about our happiness to begin with or strictly speaking about our seeing the world clearly. And then in a modern environment, the problem is even worse. And, and, you know, again, this is the Buddhist diagnosis is we don't see the world clearly. Uh, We aren't naturally happy. Indeed, we're we're prone to suffering. So I think there's a real correspondence. Um, And, I mean, the the most pervasive uh, example probably is just the fleetingness of gratification, right? I mean, you talk a lot about pi- powdered donuts. Powdered sugar donuts to me, uh, <laughs> you know, kind of epitomize pleasure. I mean, I I it, they just seem very well designed to make me uh lust after them. And uh, you know, the first ones great, and you're truly blissed out the first one you ever have. But then before long you want another one. And then as time goes on, you're paying less attention, you're getting less pleasure out of them, and wanting the next one, you know, sooner and more and more. It's just like a mindless process of scarfing them down. Um, well, that basic dynamic seems to have been built into us by evolution. You know, uh, the, the fact that enduring gratification is hard to come by makes perfect sense from natural selection's point of view, right? Because natural selection wants you to pursue things like food and sex, you know, to, to stay alive and reproduce. But obviously, if they brought, you know, endless gratification, if the gratification never dissipated, you would never pursue them again. And that's not what natural selection wants. It wants you to be on this endless quest. And this was is, of course, central to the Buddha's uh, diagnosis of the problem, this, what, what's called tanha in, uh, in ancient terminology or, or kind of, you know, just thirst, craving, always wanting more and not appreciating the fleetingness, the, the fact that what right now seems like it's going to be the answer to your problems is actually not going to last long. So th- that is itself a kind of illusion that, that natural selection built into us, the, the, an exaggeration of how enduring pleasures are going to be. How For you, how,
0: as a guy who uh, has a mild, maybe, maybe Maybe even north of mild addiction to powdered sugar donuts, and who describes himself as at least being in the neighborhood of uh, lee. How? What kind of effect has mindfulness meditation had on on uh, what has been uh, what has uh, been left to you by evolution and um, uh, family and all of that?
1: Um, well, first of all, the powdered sugar donut thing is totally under control. Really? Yeah, not so much as a result of meditation, but just that I prefer. To expend my, uh, you know, allotment of sinful behavior on, on dark chocolate.
0: Oh, okay. So you just switched.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, there's more. I, I, I guess I justify that by thinking that there's more utilitarian value in dark chocolate. You can always convince yourself that it'll help you get work done. That's true. a stimulant. Yeah. Yeah. hmm
0: This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com happier today. To get ten percent off your first month, that's betterhelp hel slash happier. Um, are you a happier dude now that you're meditating?
1: Yeah, I think so. Cause you
0: got you 16 years by my quick math. Yeah, well,
1: okay. So the first retreat was 2003. There was between 2003. I thought it was yeah. 2001. No, okay, 2003 so between 2003 and my next retreat, 2009. There were some years of lapsed, uh, lapsed meditator. But since 2009, I've been pretty good about it, and I've gone to retreat, not quite once a year since then, but uh, close. And I would say uh, definitely I, I'm, I'm happier. And the more I do it, the happier I am. Uh, and as you know, it's a challenge. Um, it, it's, you know, to, to get on the cushion every day. A thing I'm, I'm trying to do more and more is appreciate the value of, you know, I, having done my morning sitting, appreciate the value of uh, little doses of meditation during the mm-hmm. day. Like those moments when you're having trouble working and you're thinking, uh, maybe I should eat something or maybe I should, you know, what I've discovered is actually usually meditating works better in terms of getting you back on track and doing the work. It feels better. The good feeling lasts longer. Um, And yet it's surprisingly hard to remember that and keep doing it.
0: It is. What is your daily morning? sit? How long is it and what are you doing in your mind as you do it?
1: I do it for at least thirty minutes in the morning. It's pretty much standard. Start by concentrating on your breath to establish some some equanimity. Um, I sometimes do uh, I guess slightly offbeat things. Sometimes I will concentrate on the breath on the inhale and it maybe sounds in the environment on the exhale i did that on my very first retreat and uh, i don't know how i got into it but it was working for me i still do that sometimes but it, it's i do pretty standard mindfulness uh, meditation once i've gotten some uh, equanimity i often focus on feelings especially if i'm having you know problematic feelings but sometimes i just you know, bliss out on some sound like like there's a refrigerator right near where I meditate, and uh, the hum is just kind of turns out to be amazingly rich. I I never ever would have discovered had I not started meditating that a hum, a refrigerator's hum is actually not a monotonous sound. There are actually different elements of it. There are different things generating noise within the refrigerator. I mean, this is not a... and
0: this can produce bliss for you.
1: Well, yeah, because. It, it just sounds beautiful. I mean, part of, I mean, this was one of the you know things that most struck me on my first retreat was that, you know, paying a new kind of attention to things just accentuates their beauty. I mean, I was on a retreat once and there were these, uh, they were building a, a dorm. And so there were these construction noises, buzz, saw and so on. And I just, at first, of course, you're going, I can't believe they're charging us money to come to a retreat when, you know, there's all this noise going on. But then you realize, you know, you can actually turn that into music, pretty literally. And, And this is, again, you know, I was saying that casual everyday practice is not as far removed as you might think from deep Buddhist philosophical concepts. And I think the kind of thing I'm talking about now is connected to the, the so-called concept of emptiness, which is a misleading term. It it doesn't apprehending emptiness
0: by the way, many of our listeners won't know what emptiness is to
1: start. Well right. Empty. I I mean but and and understandably, because I think the term is misleading. It's commonly thought that you that you think, oh, everything out there is empty and it's meaningless or something. What it means is more well, let me give you another experience I had on my first retreat. I was walking in the woods, I looked down I saw this weed that I'd spent a lot of time trying to exterminate uh, over the years because it's a common, it's the plantain weed, it infests lawns. And uh, I just thought, wait a second, that's as pretty as anything else in this forest. Why do we call it a weed? And what had changed is that I was no longer sensing essence of weed when I looked at the weed. In other words, it wasn't just a strictly cognitive recategorization of it, of the wheat, when I no longer thought of it as a weed, there was a, an element of feeling that had changed, you know, in my perception of it. I mean, I think perceptions are very subtly infused by feelings. And I think more than we realize when we look at things, you know, trees, uh, people, people we like, people we don't like, we get this kind of vibe that's kind of an essence that we're sensing in them. And what the doctrine of emptiness is, is the assertion that actually things do not have inherent essence. That to think of this as a weed and that as a non-weed, is it's a category we're imposing. It's not actually intrinsic in the thing. And um, I think when I'm enjoying the sound of my refrigerator, I'm kind of not really thinking that's a refrigerator sound. If that makes sense, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not categorizing it. And uh, consistent with what I'm saying, that, that, that like this, like relaxing our sense of essence leads us to appreciate the beauty of things more. Consistent with that is the testimony of people who, again, these are the kind of people who experience uh, full on not self. Some of them will also tell you, yeah, I, emptiness is part of my everyday perception. And they report the world being, uh, luminous, you know, beautiful, exuding some kind of positive energy.
0: Um, Just by dint of seeing that everything has no core, everything, not, it everything, doesn't have is an the illusion core on that some we've level.
1: been projecting. Yeah, on it, and um,
0: as as sometimes has been said, it's real, but not really real.
1: Yeah, I mean, the phrase you hear is uh, things don't have inherent existence. In other words, well, the essence we're sensing is is not really in them. We're imposing that on them. And, uh, you know, in some realms, this becomes very consequential because I think one thing we sense is, like, essence of enemy, essence of good person, essence of bad person. And once we put people in those categories, um, you know, that, I think, triggers all kinds of cognitive biases that can uh, lead to trouble, which isn't to say we shouldn't kind of identify the troublemakers or, 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 or punish criminals or anything like that. But um, I think the machinery by which we categorize people in particular um, can get us into trouble and intensive meditation can relax that a little. You've probably had the same experience. I Mm -hmm. I mean, in a way, I'm saying you're less judgmental. That's, uh, but again, what I'm saying is just being less judgmental, as mundane as that sounds, that's actually connected to a deep Buddhist philosophical concept. And progress toward fuller apprehensions of emptiness, if that's what you're after, is an incremental thing. And the more you meditate, the closer you'll get.
0: So that leads me to the to the question I wanted to ask you, and I think this is one of the big, important parts of the book, is what impact Buddhism could have and meditation could have on the world?
1: Well, I mean, I, I may be a little apocalyptic by nature in my view of the world, um, but I'm Kind of concerned about where we are. I mean, uh, and I think if you look at various things that are problematic, you know, whether it's political polarization in the United States, sectarian conflict uh, in the Middle East, national conflicts and tensions, I think driving them all to some extent is what I would call the psychology of tribalism, which is by which I just mean the evolved psychology for you know, uh, for group conflict and and, and and for favoring your own group over other groups. And I think it's a very subtle thing. And it's, you know, I mean, people think when, when they say, is war inevitable? I mean, is it part of human nature? They tend to think like, are we naturally aggressive? You know, and they think of like rage and violent rampages. It's all subtler than that. I mean, it starts with biases such as so-called confirmation bias. That you, you just see the information that supports your argument, and you're oblivious to the information that supports your opponent's argument. Now, I think that's the kind of thing, the kind of problem that can be improved by mindfulness meditation. Because I think more than people realize, that is governed by a feeling. It's like when you see that information that supports your argument, it's like it feels good. The reason we click retweet and share is because it feels good, right? And and sometimes it feels good because even though we haven't actually, uh, and here's where, you know, fake news comes in, even though we haven't actually examined the story that we're sharing, it feels, you know, it reflects unfavorably on our ideological enemies or favorably on our group. And, and we just, it feels so good, you know.
0: It may be factually untrue, but it's emotionally true.
1: right. And and, and and I think, you know, mindfulness meditation can make you generally just a little more aware of the way feelings are governing your thought and your behavior. I mean, one area where I think kind of ancient Buddhist psychology converges nicely with modern psychology is appreciation of the fact that this, this separation of cognition on the one hand and feeling on the other is very misleading. I mean, feeling in a very fine-grained, subtle way influences thought and infiltrates it. And I think that's typically the dynamic that drives a lot of the cognitive biases that in turn are constitute this psychology of tribalism. And I, and I think mindfulness meditation makes you less susceptible to that, especially if you become aware of the problem as a problem. And thankfully, there is more discussion of this of this problem like political polarization fake news and so on and i i don't you know want to sound too melodramatic but it may be that the planet has reached a point where we the species needs to become more aware of how its mind how the mind works you know some some sort of like metacognitive we need to pass through some sort of metacognitive threshold and there are various ways to do that but i certainly think uh, mindfulness meditation is very well suited to becoming more aware of how our minds work, and doing something about it.
0: Do, do you have any optimism that that people will adopt mindfulness meditation in large enough numbers and in lo- at large enough doses to make a difference given the gravity of the problems we face as a species right now?
1: Well, you know, you start small, uh, movements do spread, you know. I mean, historically, whole religions have come to, you know, dominate entire civilizations and so on. So it's A, it's not impossible. B, one thing I would emphasize is that I think this is a realm where sometimes you might say unilateral disarmament works. In other words, I actually think that sometimes emotionally driven, very strong reactions to Trump play into his hands, convince his supporters that indeed everyone... Hates him in the media Is biased against him And so on And, and have various other Unfortunate consequences I actually uh, Just set up a website Called mindfulresistance.net Which we going to put out A newsletter uh, I think This is a, a prescription That would be good For the world
0: the, There are a few other Aspects of the book I'd like to talk to you about um, Talk to me about the title Because it's a strong And provocative one
1: Yes it is Uh <laughs> So, why Buddhism is true. It's not, I, I didn't have it in mind when I wrote the book, but...
0: What did you set out to do when you started writing this
1: book? Uh, I'm, I'm, you know, my book proposals never look anything like what I produce. And I, I don't even remember what this one looked like. Because um, I've learned a lot about Buddhism since I did the proposal. To put simply, why I think it's defensible. And, and you know, after I wrote the book, I realized, well, this was the argument I was making. I was, I was arguing that both the Buddhist diagnosis of the human predicament and the Buddhist prescription are right. And moreover, some uh, underlying philosophical core assertions are accurate. I was I was defending these by reference to modern psychology, evolutionary psychology. And if, to summarize them, I mean, there's this, uh, first there's the idea that Again, the reason we suffer and the reason we make other people suffer is because we don't see the world clearly. I think that's right, and I think meditation is is a, a very straightforward response to that diagnosis that can be effective if you're diligent in your practice. But beyond that, if you if you ask, well, in what senses do we not see the world clearly, Buddhism, I, I think you can kind of divide the answer into two parts. They say that we don't see ourselves clearly and we don't see the world out there clearly. And those roughly correspond to these doctrines of not-self and what is misleadingly called emptiness. Um, And toward the end of the book, I mean I say this for the end because it's, it's, you know, it's maybe the toughest sledding. I mean much of the book is about the mechanics of meditation, how it works, why it works, and how thinking about the way the mind evolved can reinforce a meditation practice. Uh, because, you know, mindfulness meditation involves a certain kind of skepticism toward our feelings, mm-hmm. right? You, you you like, you examine them and decide which ones are worth following and which aren't. Mm-hmm. And and I argue that evolutionary psychology really drives home why that makes sense. It, 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 evolution didn't design our feelings to be trustworthy in our in our sense in the way that matters to us and in some cases it designed them to delude us um so I I do most of the book is all that but by the end of the book I've uh uh yeah I've, I've taken on these two kind of core philosophical ideas and argued I mean not self uh
0: there, two core philosophical ideas, you're talking about not self. And yeah,
1: yeah. The, the idea that the self, at least as we traditionally think of it, as we naturally think of the self, uh, does not exist. There's a lot of of uh, studies in psychology and so on showing that our intuitions about what's going on in our head and the intuitions of the, of the role the conscious mind plays in our thought and our decisions is wrong. Uh, not, it, this isn't just evolutionary psychology. Psychology has been saying this for a while. Um, And I think that's useful. It's very consistent with uh, what you hear from meditation teachers. You've probably heard them say things like thoughts think themselves. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, I've never understood that. Well, I mean, I I think it makes sense in light of what I think is the best model of the human mind to have emerged from evolutionary psychology, so-called modular model where, you know, the unconscious mind consists of all these little specialized uh, kind of agents that are in a way competing for your attention, competing for control. And so the idea would be the winning modules kind of inject thoughts into your conscious mind, and then the illusion is that they kind of emanated from the conscious so, so mind.
0: So who were the modules, like jealousy and...
1: Uh... Uh, jealousy would be an example of a specialized mechanism. Um, you know, just hunger eating would be another... I mean, you can you can slice it up in a lot of ways, but, but the whole... Uh, say the whole uh, the mode of being that is triggered when you see uh, an attractive romantic prospect. You know that there's a whole range of 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 things that you uh, kinds of things you'll start doing um, that you wouldn't do uh, if if you were trying to impress a boss or something. I mean, so different. And again, here if you pay close attention, it's it's typically feelings that trigger these these modules, but. Uh, anyway, the, the point is that the new model of the mind is that it's much more decentralized than we might think. And that the action is not really emanating from the conscious mind. There there are reasons that it makes sense for us to think of the conscious self as the owner of all this and the doer of all this. You can, you can think of reasons that makes evolutionary sense to think that way and talk that way to other people. But there's a lot of evidence now that, uh, that that's not the way it works. So that when people say thoughts think themselves, uh, what they what what is really going on is that different modules think thoughts and inject them into your consciousness. I mean, as for what teachers mean, uh, I, I, I by that, I think I think they're you know advanced meditators. I've gotten here occasionally where you you're observing your thoughts and they do seem to be kind of passing by. Um, I mean, that's the idea of that phrase, but I I have an easier time getting that kind of perspective on feelings than on thoughts. Myself, what is your experience? Same thing. Yeah, I think I can't tend to
0: just believe the thoughts because I feel like they're coming from quote unquote me.
1: Right. I, I think that's common. And in the book, I talk about why I think it's natural that that be the progression of progress, that first feeling you get a little distance on feelings and then that can help you get a little distance on thoughts.
0: Yeah, once in a while, I'll see a thought come and go, but it's right.
1: It's a murky process. Right. Uh, I think that's common. And that's my experience.
0: Uh, modules. It was actually one of the things I wanted to talk to you about. I don't know if this is if you'll see this as related, but I, I there's this meditation teacher uh, that um, I'm actually writing a book with that's coming out at New Year's about um, how to meditate, and his name is Jeff Warren. He's a really funny guy mm-hmm. and um, really smart, and he had me do this thing that I thought was very corny and didn't like it, um, where he said, you know, you, you'll notice. Uh, that you have these kind of neurotic patterns that recur. And he said, you know, you maybe name them. So he said that one of his neurotic patterns, he called it El Grandioso. And it was this <laughs> thought pattern that was talking about how great he was because he actually felt insecure and in some ways excluded by his family, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So he had this module of that was uh, grandiose and t- talking about what a great guy Jeff is. And I noticed that I have these various inner characters um, uh, one i call robert johnson named after my grandfather who was not a very nice guy and um and i'm pretty you know i have this kind of judgmental guy usually judgmental of myself um who pops up in my experience and now actually even though i thought it was corny at first i find myself saying internally oh that's robert johnson mm-hmm. welcome to the party um. Uh. And 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 I disarm. Just dis, I have to kind of continuously dis, disarm him in that way. Is this another way? This is a long way of saying. Is this concept that Jeff is pushing similar to the the idea of the modular mind?
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, um, and this is you know one of the Buddha's main arguments against the traditional conception of the self is he points out there's nothing that really persists. We think of the self as a solid thing. You know, yeah, I'm the me I was when I was 10. But if you actually look at the way life unfolds, you're a completely different person one moment than you are uh, the next, depending on the circumstance. And, you know, one way you could say it is, well, it's me. I'm just in a different mood. Uh, You you could kind of gloss over the problem that way. But I, I think modern psychology, certainly one very prominent model within Modern psychology, the, the modular model, suggests that what's really going on is there almost literally are different selves in there that that occupy center stage at different times, depending on the circumstance.
0: But I struggle with that a little bit, and, and maybe I am just playing devil's advocate. But if the eight-year-old me, I get that that was a very different right. dude. But if somebody killed me, I would not be here now. So it's in some sense, in some very real sense, that was me.
1: Yeah. And, I, I, you know, it gets back to you were saying, well, what do you mean by uh, why Buddhism is true? I was going to say, I mean, there are different parts of Buddhism that I feel I can more confidently assert, you know, truth of than others. Not self is a particularly nebulous, problematic concept subject to different interpretations. I feel in a way more strongly about a lot of a lot of other parts of Buddhism than, than not self in the, in the, in the strictest sense of, of the, you know, the assertion that the self does not exist. Because if you, you know, I mean, that just tends to lead to paradoxes. If, if The claim that the self doesn't exist, such as, you know, the ones you're suggesting. But I would say that we have tremendous misconceptions about our the nature of our self, at a minimum. Meditation can lead us to a clearer view of what's really going on in there um a clearer view of the mystery of the mystery and of some of the dynamics that we had been seeing in a different way
0: right i think first we see the dynamics right and then we start to get a sense of the mystery at least for me yeah that's the way it's worked for me That's first i started to see oh yeah like rage just comes up in me when i'm cut off and but actually if i sit and watch it i can watch it arise and pass right um but then after a while you start the mystery emerges of like who's the me that's watching it arise and pass.
1: Well, I mean, at some point, you start talking about consciousness, you know, subjective awareness, and at that point, I think mystery becomes a a useful word. I, I don't think we have a satisfactory account of consciousness, and, and I mean, I mean, there's no view on. I, I don't know how deep you want to get here. I mean, go for it, man. This is <laughs> but, that's what this
0: podcast is. For.
1: Well. I, like I raise the question in my book, I go through the, the the Buddha's not self discourse and he goes, you know, is this self, is this self, is this self? Is this? And one of the parts is consciousness. That's the translation at least. And, and he says, you should view this as not self. And I'm like, wait a second. Who is viewing consciousness as not self? I can imagine all thoughts and feelings being viewed as not self by kind of part of me, but that part would have to be the consciousness, <laughs> right? So, I mean, you get into these, paradoxes, but in in the Buddha's defense, I think there's no modern view of consciousness that uh, does not suffer from problems and paradoxes. I mean, to take a very common view of consciousness, and one that's in some ways appealing to me, which is just that it's what's called an epiphenomenon. In other words, an epiphenomenon of, your, of the physical workings of your brain. So in other words, it is to your brain kind of what your shadow is to you it, uh. it, it, it it's something that is caused by the processes in your brain is influenced by them but does not in turn influence them okay so it's just it's just pure i don't want to say byproduct but but it exerts no influence on the world that's a very common view of it and i can understand that but if that's what it is if it has no influence on the world then why is it here uh, that's another way of saying consciousness has no function and If you're scientifically oriented, you would like to think that everything about a person has a function. And, you know, intriguingly, consciousness, just the fact that it is like something to be alive, we have subjective awareness, we experience pleasure and pain and so on, you know, that's, for my money, what gives life meaning. Uh, You know, if if we were just robots and it wasn't like anything to be us, then I just, you know, who would care what happened to this planet, right? So it's just interesting to me that the, the thing that seems most clearly to give life meaning is one of the most mysterious things in the world that we are farthest from understanding. Are you nervous about this book? I'm always nervous when I publish a book. Yeah, but this one seems... Oh, you know, I'm trying to... Uh, no, you're right. I mean, uh, it's not the first time I've uh, invited ridicule. I mean, this title maybe is the worst yet. But, you know,
0: I... I and have you received it, ridicule?
1: I actually did get a little,
0: yeah. And how are you dealing with that? Is meditation helpful?
1: Well, first I went through the, the, the stages of author's grief. <laughs> this person did not read the book. Uh, this person, uh, which I still believe. But anyway, I am trying to deal with it in uh, in a Buddhist way, which is really hard. You know, some things are easier than – some feelings are easier to deal with than others. And it's like, you know – The uh, feeling the dislike of the person well up, (laughs) right, intervening between that and the revenge fantasy (laughs) is really hard. It really
0: is. It's actually, I think the point of intervention to give yourself a break, to give you a break, (laughs) should come between the revenge fantasy and the actual taking of the revenge.
1: Well, I have succeeded. This person is still living. No, actually, my revenge fantasies are not violent. You that's know, fine. It's it's more like it's more like uh, oh well, this is what I'm going to say about that yeah, person yeah, yeah, in yeah. some public forum, or you know, you actually think it through. Of course,
0: I don't <laughs> think th- I don't I don't I think that that's setting the bar too high. Yeah, I think you, you sh- the, the revenge fantasies are going to come, and you usually catch it. You know, seven paces down the road mentally. Yeah. yeah, it's if if you can catch it before you're down the road physically on the way to bludgeon them or on the way to your computer to send the nastiest tweet ever devised. That, I think, is the victory, just in my view. I
1: have not mentioned this on Twitter, partly because I, I, I think it wouldn't be tactically wise to give any more attention to this, but um, the, uh, but it's hard. It, it, it is really, it's amazing how hard it is. But so far, I've refrained from doing anything regrettable in response to this particular, <laughs> this particular piece about my book.
0: Where, if people want to learn more about you and your previous books and this book and everything else you do, uh, where can they do that?
1: There's actually a website for the book, Why Buddhism Is True. dot net. On Twitter, I am at Robert Ryder, W R I G H T E R, and and I actually have a uh, a Twitter feed at Darwin Dharma that originally grew out of an online course on this stuff I taught, that in turn was grounded in a seminar I had taught about it at Princeton. And there's a Facebook page for that course. If you if you uh, search for uh, Buddhism and, and psychology, I think you'll probably get it. That course is on the Coursera platform. Um, and then I, I'm doing this this uh, MindfulResistance.net thing I mentioned. And I don't know. You mentioned the book. That's the main uh, main pluggable thing in my life right now.
0: Well, it's a great book. So well, I'm it's
1: it really it. uh, it's very nice of you to say that. And if you mean it. Uh, I'm getting even more gratification out of it. I do mean it. As I've said, I'm a big fan of your your mission. Keep thanks. it up.
0: Thanks for being a great guest. Well, Appreciate it. congratulations.
1: Thanks for being a great host.
0: Okay, that does it for another edition of the Ten Percent Happier podcast. If you liked it, please take a minute to subscribe, rate us. Also, if you want to suggest topics you think we should cover or guests that we should bring in, hit me up on Twitter at Dan B Harris. Importantly, I want to thank uh, the people who produce this podcast, Lauren Efron, Josh Cohen, and the rest of the folks here at ABC who helped make this thing possible. We have tons of other podcasts. You can check them out at abcnewspodcasts.com. I'll talk to you next Wednesday. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music, Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com slash survey.
2: Once upon a beat, remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today.